Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our study this morning. Father, we look to You, the God of all grace, the God of truth and of life and restoration of hope. You who are holy and worthy of our praise, we look to You now to feed us with the bread of life. Teach us. Help us. Help me by the power of Your Spirit to teach the truth in love. It's in the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Hebrews 9. We're going to keep pressing through this great epistle. Hebrews 9, we'll study verses 11 to 14 today. 11 through 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. This is our text for today. It's quite substantial. And if you remember last time, we were talking about, he was talking about the description of the old covenant place of worship, the earthly holy place of worship. And it had those two rooms, right? It had the entry room and then the inner room, the holy of holies. And we even discussed the room, the things that were outside the tent, which would have included the perimeter fence along with the altar where the sacrifice was burned. And then the water basin, which had the water they would wash themselves, and then you progress inward. And none of these things could actually accomplish redemption or do the real spiritual work in a soul. They were just copies and shadows. That's what they were told. They were called. They're copies and shadows of the real thing. They couldn't meet our deepest needs, which has everything to do with our conscience as well, as which he mentions in verse 9, our conscience, and he'll mention that again. And these arrangements were, were very temporary. Remember, they were earthly. They were of the earth. And they have grown old and faded away. They're gone, just like the end of chapter 8 tells us. They are gone now. And really, they're outshined. It's not that they were bad. They are outshined. They're, the substance is here replacing the copies and shadows. And they were imperfect. And they pointed to their imperfection and how they, they had to be over and over repeated. Daily, weekly. Even the Day of Atonement was yearly. So there is an incompleteness, an ineffectiveness that was even in that aspect of its ongoing aspect. And another big truth we took away was access to God was restricted for the people. It was restricted. Only the high priest could go into the inner most holy of holies, right? No one else could. 
No one else was authorized. And he couldn't do it just any time he wanted. He could only come once a year. And there is that, that restrictions shown even in the perimeter fence. And the two curtains. The first curtain in and the second curtain that goes into the Holy of Holies. So the way is shut. It's not yet open. And this all pointed to our need for a Savior. And it all pointed to Christ. And it was the way at the time. In that period of time, before Christ brought in the new day, that God had things to be worshipped, that he, he appointed things this way to be worshipped. Until, the very end of verse 10 tells us, that time of reformation. The time of Reformation. Chapter 1 tells us about these last days. Now's the time of Reformation. We're in it. And now we're about to see how the Lord Jesus brings unrestricted access to the Father. So we see this in these, these verses here. Now these verses, verse 1 of chapter 9 through verse 14, what the author's doing is he's comparing the, the priestly work of the Old Covenant and the priestly work of the New Covenant, that of the Levitical priests and that of the ultimate, final high priest, the Lord Jesus. And it tells us that he has appeared. What a, what a pregnant statement that is. He has appeared. He came through Mary, born into the world, right, incarnate. And this isn't, this isn't from the tribe of Levi. This is no Levitical priest under that whole system. He's from what tribe? Judah. He is kingly in lineage, right from the line of David. And so we're told earlier that he's of a different order. That of who? Melchizedek. He is a priest king. He's the eternal priest king. And he has appeared. We see that little word, but, at the beginning of verse 11. But when Christ appeared. This is the transition. The author is now making this transition, this change in themes from the old covenant earthly tent and the work of them and now to the work of Christ, which we're going to see is in the heavenly tent. He's appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. The good things that have come. That would be a, that's a lifetime study, those words. The good things. The good things. All the benefits in Christ have appeared. They're here. They're now. And they're also future. And the good things have to do with this time of reformation. His way of making all things new. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing today. He's making all things new. Like his father told him, come and sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your foot as a footstool for your feet. And he's doing this, this time, these last days, we're in them. And he is making all things new. He's the one purging sin. He's the one who has opened the way for us to have unrestricted access to God and forever. So basically, Christ is accomplishing our redemption perfectly as the perfect mediator and the perfect high priest he's he's doing and has done what Aaron and the Levitical priests could never do they could never dream of pulling this off all of them combined all the high priests throughout history 
combined couldn't do what this one great high priest has done. So the question is, how did he do it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. The theme is going to be eternal redemption secured by Christ. And this is getting at the very heart of the entire Bible. And it's at the heart of the book of Hebrews as well. Eternal redemption secured by Christ. So it says in verse 11, he names him as Christ. Christ. Now again, this is not his last name. This is his office. This is the anticipated one, the Messiah. The prophet, priest, and king in one man, the Christ, entered once for all into the holy places. And he did this by entering through the greater and more perfect tent, he says, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. It's a parenthetical thought in the English Standard Version it has there. It's, that little thought, that parenthesis needs to be there and be understood. So I want us to consider after the cross, after he died on the cross, gave up his spirit, he was buried in that tomb, remember? Joseph of Arimathea had that un used tomb, new, right there ready, and he was buried. Three days later, he rose. And then, we're told, he ascended into heaven. He had met with them on a, couple, a few occasions, but now he ascended. We're told about this in Acts 1, verse 9, when Luke tells us, when he had said these things, some of the last things he told them, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. That's into the sky. And it says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the ascension. He was entered in forever now. So we're seeing this great contrast. These old covenant priests whose ministry was on earth with these copies and shadows in an earthly tent with the two compartments. The first room that had the candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense And the second room behind the second curtain where the Ark of the Covenant was, which contained the two tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that had budded was there, and this urn with the manna was kept and preserved in that room. This is earthly. This is earthly. The the contrast now is where? And we'll see three major contrasts. The where, the means, and the, the substance through which, the how long. So the where, the means of entering, and the how long aspects, what we'll look at today. Where Christ, our great high priest ministers, we're told is in the real heavenly sanctuary. I think this is a way of saying in heaven. He's there right now. And this whole aspect of heaven and what it's like is a complete mystery to us. None of us here can imagine the glory of it, the beauty of it, any of it really. And it it seems as though heaven has an entryway similar to that like we're told this tent has. We know it has the gates, the perimeter fence. We're told in Revelation about gates of pearl. And then we we know also that it, well, apparently it must have some kind of entryway, like that first room. Maybe a foyer of some kind, a glorious, a glorious entryway that leads into 
the presence of God, the manifest glory and presence of God. Remember, Moses was told by God, make all of this exactly as I tell you. These are copies and shadows. And and the thing about this is that just like the earthly tent, much more, no one just waltzes in to the heavenly realm, do they? The old covenant priest, the high priest, didn't do it in the earthly tent. And he, when he did, he had to take blood that wasn't his own and incense and to wash. He had to go through a process before he could step one foot into that inner holy of holies. This is the realm that we're talking about that is not of this creation. It isn't earthly. It's the true place of God's presence. But what I want us to think about, what is the greater and more perfect tent through which Christ entered? Through which, we see those words in English standard, through which Christ entered heaven. I believe what he's referring to is his human nature. I'm in good company with Mr. Owen and Spurgeon and others. Um, Calvin, his human nature. Paul spoke of his body as a tent. It's referenced by Christ himself as a temple. But in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and following, Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of his body as a tent, saying, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about his body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he goes on to talk more about that. Well, Christ's flesh represents the, the veil or the curtain that opens the new and living way into the Holy of Holies. You see that explicitly in, in chapter 10, verse 20, where we'll get to it later, but he says, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. He would even say, Christ would say, I am the way. So our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is there in heaven as a man, as the God-man. That's vital for us to understand. And for our own endearment to him and our own Christian faith, he's there as a man. He is the true human being in heaven. He's the God-man who is there, representing humanity and uniting humanity with God. He's the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And Paul, or not Paul, the author of the Hebrews tells us, stop laughing, that now the point in what we're saying in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And this is what we're talking about. This is, he's elaborating and expounding now on this point, that Christ is there. Humanity, in his humanity, he alone can make this reconciliation. And we also see a contrast or comparison now with the frequency. That's the where. Now we're talking about the frequency, the how often in which the old covenant priests entered the earthly tent, right? And now the contrast with how often Christ entered the heavenly holy places. 
Now, the old covenant priests entered, we, t- we talked about this, repeatedly, daily, weekly, and yearly. They could come in at certain times, and only the high priest on the annual Day of Atonement, they could come in, but then they had to get out. They had to get out of there. In fact, the people were standing outside praying, right, while he was in there. He had bells on so they could hear that he's still moving around. And they were praying, and when he came out, it was like a big relief, like, oh, he's made it, he's alive, he's here. He had to get out. He couldn't stay. He had to do what he was appointed to do and get out. If he decided to say, I'm just going to stay overnight here and just enjoy this, he'd be dead, right? But Christ has entered through the true holy places once for all. He entered and he stayed. And he lives there. He's there. He ever lives there to make intercession for you and me. He's in the true holy of holies. This is his home. This is where he belongs. And he's, he's at work there right now. It's quite a thing to contemplate and think about. So then we come to this third contrast or comparison with the means. What did he have to take? What did he have to do? What means? The means by which the old covenant priests entered the earthly tent was by what? The blood of bulls and goats. He says that right here in the text. And of course, he had to take incense as well. But the high priest had to have something to offer and in the Old Covenant, and that's the same with the New Covenant. He, he had to have something to offer. That's what qualifies him. That's what makes him who he is as the high priest. So the comparison now is, is that of between bulls, the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant and now Christ's own blood in the New Covenant. He says he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now I want us to think about what that means. His own blood or the blood of Christ. What is that referring to? Now, if we consider the imagery last time of how the high priest had to go into the old covenant with that holy vessel that contained the blood of the bull. And he would kind of keep it swirled from coagulating and, and then he would he'd go in with that means. But I don't believe that Christ entered in with a bowl or a vessel of some sort with his own earthly, physical blood. That's not what he's saying. And some, some mystic commentators get a little carried away here. And they, they get into realms and things. I don't think they know what they're talking about shouldn't be. I won't go into all of that, but I read pages and pages on this that, like, I'm not even going to bring this stuff up. It won't help. They're going to get distracted from the main point. We know that Christ shed his blood predominantly on the cross. I think that would have been predominantly where, where most of the blood was shed, of his blood shedding. You know, he, he also had that crown of thorns that was pressed upon his head before that and even before that he was scourged by the Roman soldiers with that whip with the bone and metal tips really would have lacerated and, and, and cut up his back to pieces and he was hit in the rod, with a rod hit with the fists so from the moment of his arrest he was 
at a point of shedding blood. It's a mystery in how the statement was, even the night before his arrest, it said he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Even, even when he was carrying his cross down the road to Golgotha, he would have been dripping blood, right? The Lord Jesus did physically shed his blood on the earth. And, but I think what the author is communicating here now is it's more of a graphic synonym. When he talks about the blood of Christ, I didn't make that word graphic synonym up. I, I read that. It's a graphic synonym. What's a synonym? The young people who studied their, their grammar probably can tell us right now. They can get up here. But a synonym is a word or a phrase that means exactly or nearly exactly what that word or phrase, another word or phrase. It's a synonym. And so he's talking about really, ultimately, the death of Christ. When he's talking about the blood of Christ, he's talking about the death of Christ. And I think that also includes his suffering. So when he's mentioning the blood of Christ, that's what it is, his suffering and in his body physically and in his soul. There's a suffering going on and ultimately death. So his own, by his own blood is speaking of the death of Christ and in its sacrificial relevance, what all that meant. That one phrase sums all that up. For example, the, the sacrificial animal couldn't just be cut and get some blood from that, right? Or drip some out. No, they had to die. They had to die. And it's the same with our Savior. He had to die. We'll see more of this in verse 15, the immediate verses after this, saying a testament, a will or a testament won't be enforced until a death has occurred. So he had to die. The picture is that really of a spotless, innocent life dying in the place of another. And that's what we have with Christ. It's a substitution. The atonement is a substitutionary atonement, another's blood for you. We'll see later that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. One big difference with these goats and bulls and all of this is that they had no idea what was going on, did they? They had no mental cognizance or understanding of what they represented or even what they were doing or what the priests were doing with them. They didn't have a clue. They're, they're animals. They're beasts. They, they don't know. For all they knew, they are going to go in here and get some more feed or something. They don't know. So it's an ignorant, unwilling substitute it's different with our lord totally different it's not the case with him he knew his mission perfectly remember he set his face like a flint to go to jerusalem because he understood he knew the father's will perfectly and fully for him and none of this took him by surprise or confused him right it was a 100 percent obedience based on a 100% understanding. He's a perfect mediator and substitute for us. And he gave himself willingly and freely. Yes, he was arrested that night and, and bound and all of that. But before that, remember what happened? He made it very clear, abundantly clear, who was in charge. 
When they said, when he said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. What happened? He knocked them all down. All the army, the whole military, the whole battalion fell backwards to the ground. It's a display of saying, I'm in charge. No one takes my life. I give it freely. I'm not some dumb animal, ignorant, being led unknowingly into what's going on. I'm coming of my own accord. He says that exactly in John 10, verse 17 and 18. And he said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so you see him in willing obedience, walking in accordance with the will of his Father, a perfect high priest. He had a mission to accomplish, and this, this was accomplished in love. He loved and loves his Father, and he loves you. And that's why he did it. That's why he went willingly. It's a mission of love. This, as Owen says, was the greatest expression of the inexpressible love of Christ. I love that. The greatest expression of the inexpressible love of Christ. His willingly coming and shedding His blood for us. At the end of verse 12... It says he entered the holy places once for all, doing what? Securing an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. That is what we're talking about. That is the goal of everyone, the desire of every human heart. Deep down, eternal redemption. That's what the Bible's about. And again, I think this is getting at the very heart of what the book of Hebrews is about. Eternal redemption by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is something Aaron and the other Levitical high priests could never accomplish. Christ accomplished it. He's done it. He secured it. You can't accomplish it by your works or your bloodshedding or your efforts or any of it. He has done it. It's that covenant that's made and secured forever with the Father in Christ, the mediator with you. Eternal redemption. The great high priest who has secured a new, better, eternal covenant. He's done it. This is what we're going to see now is that he's truly made purification for our sins. Because that's your biggest problem. Your sin. And he's secured it now. Verses 13 through 14. These verses show us that. He's He's comparing the blood of bulls and goats in this aspect of sprinkling defiled persons. That's a, that's, a, that's a noteworthy word, defiled persons. We are all defiled by our sin. From the least sin to the greatest, all combined have defiled you. And he talks about with the ashes of a heifer going doing only something really external. It's a sanctification for the flesh. Now, but it really, you know, when he talks about this, it's a how much more comparison. This really did do something for the people before God and God's eyes. It really accomplished its purpose. It was limited, 
and external, says, of the flesh, it was still necessary, and it was, as he said, sanctifying, which would have meant that it set them apart as, as clean, legally, ceremonially. That sanctifying set them apart in this cleansing way. Now, it's a little bit curious or interesting why he brings up the ashes of a heifer. This is a little different than the, the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. It's a different thing. And it was something apparently used for people that had come into contact with a dead person or a dead thing. Or maybe even they walked over an unmarked grave unknowingly. Or someone in their household died, which would therefore have made everyone in the household unclean and defiled. It could be one of those unintentional sins. That it's not your fault, but it's the reality. You are defiled. You are unclean. You cannot come before me now and worship. Something must be done. So this, this ashes of a heifer, was, it was a red heifer taken outside the camp, outside the gates. It was, it was slaughtered and burned completely. And they would take the ashes of that and then they'd take what was called moving water or pure water or living water and mix it with these ash. So it's kind of a picture of this death and a dead thing, a dead animal, a dead substitute. The, the ashes of it mixed with the living, pure water, maybe the Holy Spirit. And then they would take, they would take a mixture of that with a hyssop branch and, and, and sprinkle you with it. And that's what made you clean. And I think the main point in this whole thing that he's talking about is that defilement hinders worship and service. Defilement hinders worship. And what he's showing us is every impediment had to be removed. Every, every impediment. Everything that would hinder your worship before God, had to be removed. And the conscience is really the pinnacle impediment. Your conscience. I mean, that, that thing, it, it's an amazing thing. It's not your brain or your mind. But your conscience won't let you worship God. Won't. Not if you're not in Christ. And look at the how much more statement in verse 14. He said, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, the blood of Christ is what actually accomplished this needed work deep in us. Deep in us. And he says, Christ offered himself to God. To God. He didn't offer himself necessarily to you. The emphasis is to God. It's for you. And he says, through the eternal spirit. Now, the eternal spirit's difficult to know exactly what he's talking about here. Hebrews is tough. It's not the easiest always. We can always catch the essence, but this is the only time in the New Testament those two words are put together, eternal spirit. So the question is, well, is that the Holy Spirit or... Is it referring to the eternal spirit of the Son of God himself? Now, if it's referencing the Holy Spirit, that, that he, God through the eternal spirit that he's offered himself, then 
this would make a unique statement showing the work of the Trinity in salvation right here in this verse. Because you have the Father, you've got God, you've got Christ, and you've got the Spirit. All right here. Now we know that's true. Years ago, I taught on the economy of the Spirit, the role of the Trinity within your salvation. That's definitely the case. And you see the distinction between even the Son, Christ, and God, the Father. They're distinct persons. And the Spirit. This could also allude to Isaiah 42.1, a fulfillment of that prophecy. Where Isaiah said, this is God speaking through Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this upholding aspect, the spirit within him aspect and all of that. So we know that Christ lived and worked and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And And he had the Holy Spirit. He came in the form of a dove. And entered and it was upon him, his whole ministry. But we also know this, and I, I think this is probably the case, I don't know, but we know that the Son of God, who upholds the universe by the power of his word, the Son, he has had an, ex- an existence with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. And this existed, he existed. And this would have been his essential nature before he became a man and before he was born of the Virgin Mary, before before he was incarnate, he existed and it would have been in the form of a spirit. So this idea makes sense as well and it's the notion that it was through the heavenly aspect of Christ's deity that he offered himself to God. Now, these are deep waters, I admit. But it sure is something to meditate on and take away with you and think about. Because we were getting a glimpse right here. I wouldn't be talking about this if it weren't brought up in the text. We're getting a glimpse into something. It's for our our upbuilding and for our meditation. John Owen, he says and suggests that the divine eternal spirit of Christ served as the altar and remember, what the altar was that bronze great thing, the support structure that held, that held the sacrifice in its suffering and demise and burning and pain. It upheld. And Owen says, this is, the, this is the function of the eternal spirit of Christ. And it served as the altar and the fire. It's amazing. It's quite insightful if that's the case, if that's the picture we're given. Because these are all copies and pictures of heavenly real realities. So he says, the eternal spirit of Christ was the altar whereon he offered himself. This supported and bore it up under its sufferings. Whereon it was presented unto God as an acceptable sacrifice. Now, it was the human nature of Jesus that died, right? He and his humanity, his human nature died and suffered as an offering 
His eternal spirit did not die. So this is quite a concept, and it, it, it has good, good, good guys advocating for this, like Owen, Charles Spurgeon did. Gerhardus Voss, a Westminster theologian, wrote a long article on it. But no one's really dogmatic, again, because this is the only time this, these two words are put together. It may have been the Holy Spirit that did just that and served just as that. No one's dogmatic. In fact, Owen was very friendly about it and said, you, you decide. So that's how I'll be. I'll say, you decide. But the, the truth, the, the main idea is not lost at all. It's namely this, that Christ had been, in, had been divinely empowered and sustained in his sacrificial work as high priest. He had to be. Well, this brings us now to our conscience and our works, and I'll wrap it up. He said, how much more is still the theme? How much more? That's the comparison. The sinless son of God, he's spotless, sinless, pure. We've talked about that. He brings it up again, though. The sinless son of God who perfectly fulfilled the law, who was holy in every respect, has presented himself to God as this sacrificial offering. No bulls and goats, not, not the blood of that, but himself, his very self, the whole Christ, who he was. The high priest himself was the offering. And his works alone, his blood alone can do this, purify our conscience from dead works, he says, to serve the living God. Purify our conscience. That conscience is important. It's a God-given, I don't even know how to describe, mechanisms in you, your conscience. It's not your mind. Your conscience speaks to your mind. Your mind argues with your conscience, right? You can harden your conscience by thinking things through in ways you shouldn't. This is a different, there's a distinction. And Paul mentions this in Titus 1.15. It's a very important verse here, I think. Titus 1.15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But... To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, unbelief, remember, that's at the heart of all sin. If you're unbelieving, you do not have a pure or clean conscience. That's a fact. And he says this, the last part of Titus 1.15, but both our minds and their consciences are defiled. So he makes a distinction. Both. Your mind is defiled and your conscience is defiled. That's a fact. That's a heavenly biblical fact. And this has to be dealt with. And Christ has dealt with it. It's incredible. It's that inner knowledge of yourself, especially the the sense of your accountability to God, from your actions and your motives. Your conscience will, will eat you up just from your motives. Isn't that amazing? Because you're made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. And, and now you know you're accountable to God. You know it. You've got a conscience. This inner consciousness. Now, Owen, again, he thinks the conscience is really a way of speaking of the entire soul and all the faculties of it. 
The conscience is at the heart of it. And to purge or cleanse our conscience is to purge us in our whole person. I mean, if you've got a clean, purged, pure conscience, you're clean, deep in, through and through. Incredible. So in Christ, offering himself to God, he's accomplished a couple of major things. Number one, he's brought peace with God. He's made peace with God for you. He's reconciled you to God. You're at peace with him. He's at peace with you. And he's come to you now, and he's purified your conscience. And this is done through his blood. Now this is, I think, maybe saying the part of you that wants to earn your favor back by your good deeds. There's something in you. Sometimes I say, I just got to earn something. I got to earn something. He's, he's doing away with that. Remember the prodigal son? He, he wanted to go back to his father, but he wanted to actually become one of his lowest servants to earn back his spot, but his father had nothing of it. He didn't even get to that part. He didn't even, the father didn't even let him deal with that. He was putting ring on him. He was putting clo- clothing him with the robe. He's putting sandals on, and he's like, it's done. You're, you're good. You're in. We ain't going to talk about that other stuff. And he links this with dead works. What are dead works? works dead works are two or three things for sure. And one of them is it's produced by people who are spiritually dead. They're not Christians. Your works are dead. Now, that does not mean every single thing a non-Christian does can't be helpful or even beautiful or amazing. And it doesn't necessarily mean everything they do is overtly wicked. But it's dead nonetheless. Now, it does, though, have, it accompanies dead uh, spiritual fruit that's dead. It, it no fruit. Dead works are accompanied by sinful fruit. Dead fruit. By your actions, your words. You make a mess of things. You wreck things. You destroy things. You kill things. You ruin relationships. You bring about sadness. You bring about shame through dead works. So they certainly and predominantly have sinful fruit. Romans 6.21, very familiar passage, says, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So ultimately, these dead works end in eternal death. That's what it is. In some sense, everything that we do apart from Christ, saving grace in Christ, in some sense, it's it's a dead work. And it will have no lasting spiritual value at all. And your conscience knows it. That's what he's talking about. Your conscience knows it. It will accuse you if it's not cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ. See, when Christ deals with your conscience, now you can serve God. Now you can worship God. The woman at the well, remember? Bad conscience, bad past, eating her up. Now she discovered, I've got to, have, I've got to worship God in spirit and truth. Now we truly serve and worship God because of and only because of what our great mediator and Savior has done and accomplished through his blood. That's the only way to get a clean conscience is look 
to the blood. Listen to the message of the blood, the blood of Christ. So because of him, now you have unrestricted access to God. That's what we're summing up, unrestricted access. Your sins have been completely atoned for. They've been purged. The debt is paid. The hymn we sing, Jesus paid it all, right? It's an eternal redemption. So this is the reality of what Christ has accomplished. If you're believing, you're believing in him. If you're trusting in him and holding fast your confession, you've got full access. So when you blow it sometime, because you're going to, you've got a place to go. You know where to go to your sympathizing high priest who has entered into the holy places by his merits of his own blood, who has offered himself to God for you. So let's serve him and worship him and live for him. Amen. Father, bless this word to your people. What a rich and beautiful text. Thank you for it. Fill in the gaps. Help people meditate on these great truths, minister to hearts in ways I could never possibly do. I ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.